give you a date. This morning is Sunday. It is uh, December 14, 2008. Our message this morning is called Exact Places. So if you're taking notes in your bulletin, I left your room to do that. Uh, I think you'll hear some neat things. Turn with me to Psalm 33. Tell me when you're there. There. He's there. He beat the rest of the church. Psalm 33. Two of you are there. I'm waiting. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. This makes it an easy book to find. And when you get to the middle of your Bible, start to work left and you'll see a number that says 33. Three. That'd be Psalm 33. So in Psalm 33, we're going to pick up with, uh, with a couple principles that will be the foundation for our teaching this morning. And uh, hopefully it will be impacting to your life like it has been mine. We're going to start in the first verse here. Still here, pages turning. We're going to do Bible uh, speed challenges soon. Mm. All right, you ready? First verse. Yes. Yeah. Lord, what's wrong with y'all this morning? Are y'all ready for the first yeah. verse? Yeah. Okay. Sing joyfully to Yahweh, mm-hmm. you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him with the ten-string lyre. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves the righteous. He, I'm sorry, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. And do you know people that that is not their worldview? That the world is full of God's unfailing love? Mm-hmm. You ever woke up and you couldn't see anything except as gray? Nothing was bright, nothing was beautiful. I need to encourage you that God created the earth and said it was good on every day. The day He created you, He said it was very good. The world is a good place. It's just got some problems, just like you do. And God is fixing it. We need to be on the team that is fixing it. That will not happen if we're pessimistic and negative all of the time. I'm not preaching a self-help gospel this morning. This will not be a motivational seminar to tell you how to be a better person. It really won't. But the truth is, the way that we view the world affects our actions. And I want to encourage you, if you look for it, the world is full of beautiful things. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of His mouth. Everything that we see, the Bible makes the claim, there is one God who is responsible for it. This is distinctly different than the claims of other religions. During the time the Bible was written, people, uh, the major cultures of the world were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods and usually created things. This is not the way that the earth started. The earth started with one God and His representatives on earth, and then the corruption was the idea of many gods. It just so happens that there's a guy named Edwin Tyler. You can hold your finger here. I'm chasing a rabbit at the moment. And Edwin Tyler advanced a theory, a theory that greatly influenced Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Mussolini. This was an idea that came into being after uh, Darwin had begun to teach about evolution, uh, Darwinian evolution. And what it did was it took the idea that animals were evolving to a higher form, and it looked at cultures from like the perspective of an anthropologist and said, cultures are evolving the same way. And the most advanced cultures on the earth today 
this racist man said were Indo-European cultures. The most backwards people on the planet, Mr. Tyler said, were the colored peoples of the world, and he specifically named African countries. And he said those African countries are polytheistic. They have many gods. Well, the Indo-Europeans worship a single god. So just like man is evolving from a lower animal form into a higher form, religion is evolving. And the next step in evolution went from polytheism to monotheism to there is no God at all. Now this appealed to people. And the reason it appealed to people, like Hitler, was because the idea was that man could become a god to himself and there could be a super race that was better than everyone else. This thought dominated, absolutely dominated, all communist bloc countries and is still taught in places like China today. Uh, a spouse is absolute fact. The problem is when missionaries have gone around the world, they have found in every culture the roots of monotheism. One true God, a creator God above all others. So the very premise that this is taught from, the very thesis of primitive peoples were polytheistic is wrong. In the very beginning, the Bible tells us the story of a singular line of human beings that recognized the one true God. This psalm asserts that that is true. It says that the Lord by His Word made the heavens, the starry host by the breath of His mouth. We're going to talk this morning a little bit about what all the world knows and then what special revelation is given and talk about how it affects our lives. He gathers the waters of the sea into a jar. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere Him. There's a God that created everything. He wants every people group on the planet not only to fear Him and love Him, but to revere Him. This is God's desire. He's not willing that any should perish, a writer in the New Testament said. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His hearts throughout all generations. Hold your finger there and look at me. This psalm says something that we see in our culture, we see in the cultures around the world. All of the nations have their own plans. These are people groups. All families have their own plans. When they coexist with God and they are in alignment, that's a fantastic thing. But when they don't align with God's plans, He has to thwart them. He has to work against them. So what you need to begin to get as we talk about this is that there's a way that seems right to us. But there's a way that God says is right and they don't always match. This is true of individuals and it's true of nations. Most of our lives are in looking at the differences between what God says and what we feel like is right and trying to reconcile the two. Come on, as Christians, have you never been in a place where you thought, this seems like what I should do, but Lord, what do you want? Sometimes you feel a deafening silence. Other times you feel a cacophony of voices. Parents, friends, pastors, everyone around you all speaking. But what is God's plan? Look at these next few verses. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He chose for His inheritance. Out of all the people groups on the planet, He chose one to give His written word to, and they were blessed because they were not left simply to their own plans. They had plans from God for them. A special revelation. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. 
Whether you're on a desert island, no matter where you are, the Lord sees all mankind. Look at the next verse. From His dwelling place, He watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. What does it mean to consider? Think about that. He is considering, <laughs> contemplating, dwelling, meditating upon your decisions and your plans. He's looking to see whether or not He will have to thwart your movement or whether or not He's going to fan it and help it. He's looking to see whether or not your plans align with His or whether your plans are opposed to His. Nobody in their right mind would ever say, you know, I think I'm going to do exactly what God does not want me to do. And yet we find ourselves straying from what we know is right, doing what is expedient at times. Have you never been there? I certainly have. The nations are no different. He has a plan. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32.8, you don't have to turn there, that God divided the nations. He gave them all boundaries and allotted His inheritance according to the number of the sons of Israel. And people look at it and they don't know what it means. It means that He chose one nation and said, this is what will happen with this nation. And every other nation in the world, destiny is tied to that one. Their callings, the purpose for them in life, is derived from what He wants to do in that one nation. Now think about that. Think about that at this moment. The book that you're reading. What nation did it come from? Israel. You learn about your plan. You learn about God's plan for your life based on His plan for Israel. The whole point here though is that He's given all of mankind some knowledge of Him, but He has given select portions of mankind special knowledge of Him. Let's keep going. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength that cannot save. In other words, you may have superior skill. You may have superior resources. But if God looks at your plan and says, this is counterproductive to what I want to accomplish, you cannot succeed. And the converse is true as well. You may have inferior resources. You may have inferior skills. You may simply not have enough fishes and loaves to accomplish what He wants to do. But if it's what He wants to do, He will multiply it so that it will be accomplished. This is the God we serve. Sometimes we look at small events and we try to discern His greater plan. Our God works over centuries. He let His people sit in Egypt for 400 years because He had a purpose for them. He caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years because He had a purpose. If we pray and we don't hear from Him five minutes later or see the immediate results, we're often very confused. We have to give God time to reveal His plan to us. We have to acknowledge that we may have a general sense of what is right and what we think we ought to do, but it does not always align with Him. And there are some ways He gets our attention. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Every card can be stacked against you. Famine that turns other people around, that ends one family line that is wicked, can be the very tool that leaves only the righteous. God can... Think about the story of Ruth for a moment. You would not have a great-great-grandmother of King David if there had not been a famine. But who wants to go through a famine? Nobody, right? But if your purpose is aligned with God, you cannot 
fail. If your purposes were of human origin, you are destined to fail and you will stub your toe over and over and over along the way. You follow what I'm telling you? So most of our life is trying to discern whose plan we're operating according to. And unfortunately, it's not as easy as just opening the book. It requires a relationship. You ever read a letter from somebody you didn't know to someone you didn't know? It doesn't make a lot of sense. There can be inside jokes. There can be uh, affectionate terms for each other that don't sound affectionate to you. You know, My father called my mother dear, right? Well, if you're reading a translation of this in your Spanish, it sounds a lot like you're calling her an animal that runs around the woods. But if you know them and are familiar with the culture and everything else, you understand it's a term of affection. It's not D-E-E-R, it's D-E-A-R. You understand? We have to become intimately familiar with the culture and have a relationship with God to know what He's trying to show us. What we tend to want to do is get just close enough to get His approval on our plan. That will never work for you. It will never work. You'll be frustrated your whole life long. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice for we trust in His holy name. May Your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in You. There is a Creator of all. That's evident from this. He has a plan. That's evident. He has to foil the plans of nations when their plan is not His. He watches over us and considers everything we do. But not just we. Everything they do as well. No matter who you are on the planet, God is contemplating your actions. He's able to deliver from death and keep alive people who are in famine to bring His plan about. Our God's not limited by resources. He is a shield, a protective agent for people whose hope is in Him. You can have a wrong idea about something but really love the Lord and He will still shield you because your hope is in Him. And He will work to bring you the revelation that you need. Turn with me then to Psalm 19 got one more to cover and then we're going to get into something hopefully that will expound upon it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hand. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth the words to the ends of the world. This means that the creation itself is pouring forth knowledge about Yahweh God. That no matter what language you speak or where you are on the planet, there is something to be discerned about Him, a testimony about Him, just from the creation itself. Ecclesiastes said that He put eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, God built you to want what is eternal. He built you to have a yearning and a craving for Him. Then He designed the environment itself, the creation, to cause you to look for the One who can fulfill that eternity in your hearts. There is an innate craving in human beings just when we're operating in our normal life to want to contact the divine. There's a reason for this. You were made from the dust of the earth and the breath of the divine. Your existence is a merger between the earthly and the divine, a partnership. 
You walk around some of the earth and some of the heavens 100% of the time. And you're neither happy solely in a spiritual environment nor in an earthly environment. You were made to live in the tension between those two things. God created us for that purpose. But every human being understands this speech. He gives an example. He says, In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. The contention of this psalmist is that you can look at the way the sun acts during the day and learn something about God. Now that seemed a bit far-fetched for me. And as I began to think about all of the biblical allusions and all of those things, I understand that Jesus appears in the east and His light's visible in the west and all of those things. But it didn't quite do it for me. And as I began to think about that, I remembered an example. An example I had read in a book called Eternity in Their Hearts where a man was staring at the sun and learned something about God. I'm going to share with you that in a minute, but I want you to hear another part of this first. It rises to one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What we have in the first six verses is a description that all of the creation speaks to you a general message about God. Number one, that there is a Creator of all things. And all human beings feel that tugging. That's why all men everywhere worship something. Atheists claim not to. And yet right now, dominating the news cycle, at least on Fox News, is that it has been demanded that a sign be placed next to a Christmas tree in the state of Washington that says there is no God and we are atheists. That sounds like a religion to me. Otherwise, why would you care? Why would you need a sign next to another religious symbol? If there is no God, why would you care at all? They have become gods to themselves. Men were created to want to worship something. The creation draws us to do that. And because there's a relationship between us and the creation, people tend to worship created things. This is why the Bible says over and over and over, don't worship stone, hay, wood, the works of your hands, your job, your computer, anything else. Let's keep going. The law of the Lord is perfect. The creation itself is a general revelation, but the law was divinely given to a special group of people upon the earth to teach them the perfect way of God. See, the problem with general revelation is a little bit like general direction. <coughs> Have you ever had to get from here to maybe a special street in downtown Houston? And if somebody said, well, you take 59 North and then you're going to exit to the left. That is a general direction. But could you get lost on the way? <coughs> Patricia, could you get lost on the way? <laughs> What's better than a general is a special revelation that says, look, on the left-hand side of your car, you're going to see a building and then a street sign. And you'll turn at this street sign. You're going to go so many feet and then you'll come to this. Very specific, special revelation. All mankind got the general revelation, but Israel got the specifics. This was a special thing, and look what it does. It revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. General revelation is wonderful. It's great that you know that there is a God. It's great that you know that He's a good God. 
It is so much better to begin to understand His character. To know what He would choose. To move and act as motivated by His Spirit. This is radiant. It makes you wise beyond your years. Everybody gets the general. Not everybody gets the special revelation. Or at least they don't listen to it. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold. They are, I'm sorry, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. The psalmist has a moment of introspection. He's thinking about the general revelation that all the creation speaks, then the special revelation that he was given. He said, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. He's acknowledging something. Inside of us, we have a general way in which we think things ought to go. A way that things ought to operate. A way that seems right to us. But if it were not for a special revelation from God that said, Eric, don't do that. How would I know it was wrong? It seemed right to me to do. It seemed like a good thing to do. We are caught in the tension between what seems okay and seems moral and what God says in this specific situation you must do. There are levels of general revelation, levels of special revelation, but all of it has to do with the same thing. Okay, this is good, but Lord, what is good for me this moment? Doesn't this take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden? We're sitting in a situation in the Garden of Eden where God says what is and is not good in every situation for a man to do. But man wanted that choice for himself. Just tell me in general, Lord, what's good and what's evil. Well, eat from that tree, but it's going to kill you. It'll kill you every time. If we operate on our mere instinct, just what the creation tells us about God, just what we feel like is right, Proverbs says in two different places, it will lead you to destruction. We need more than that. We need a spiritual leading every day of our lives. says, Lord, in general, it's a good thing to marry a person. But do you want me to marry this person? Do you want me to marry them now? In general, it's a good thing, Lord, to have children. You said be fruitful and multiply. But do you want me to have children now? What should I be praying for, Lord? These are the decisions that make Him Lord of our lives and us His people. Lord, it's good for me to go buy groceries for my family. But do you want me to speak to that woman now and give her my groceries? Or do you want me to take mine home with me? None of these are decisions that are simply right or wrong. They're either God's special revelation in your life or they're not. And when you follow mere natural instincts and the general revelation, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get it wrong sometimes. Then, the average person shows up at some pastor's house years later broken and hurt. says, I tried to do what was right and it didn't work. God let me down. You don't know how many times I've heard that. When I married her, she was beautiful and she was sweet, and now she's as cold as that table. <laughs> sure, it was all her fault. Right? Were you the priest at home? Did you bathe her with the Word? Did you set a righteous example before marriage and after? Did you teach her the Word? Did you bring your family to church? Did you instruct them? Well, no, she took the kids to church. But I, I told her to go. I was on the deer stand. Good for you. I hope you and Bambi have a nice eternity together. <laughs> you hear this all of the time. The Bible is a story about man learning to discern his own errors and learning 
to hear from God about what we should and should not do, letting Him make that choice. Listen to this. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Isn't this what God said to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. See, we realize that we don't get everything right. But it is a whole other step to say, Lord, help me to choose your will in this situation. We've even devised theological schemes for ourselves that God has a perfect will and a permissive will. Really, that sounds like what you're trying to say is anything you do is in God's will in one way or another. Well, how is He God then? How is He God if any choice you make is the right choice? I heard a man stand up and preach to a football stadium full of people. He was a preacher and he said, if I knew then what I know now about God's permissive will, I'd have played football and then become a preacher. I thought, you make me sick. Are you sure you're working for God now? God has a will for our lives. It's not negotiable. It's not optional. You will find yourself picking against Him if you're outside of it. When you're in it, you'll find yourself kicking against something, but it won't be God, it'll be the enemy. And you will run Him over. Because God made you to trample on the scorpion. He made you have authority over the power of the enemy. But this is the lifelong decision. Is this God's resistance or is this the devil's resistance that we have to fight through, isn't it? You better have a good relationship with God or else how would you know? He's merciful though. He wants to bring His revelation to you. This is why He sends missionaries around the world. He sends a white person to a dark continent. He sends a dark person to an entirely white continent. He does this on purpose. He does it because it requires us to humble ourselves. Hear something from someone different than us to acknowledge that maybe the general way in which we're operating is not the right way. And maybe this person has something special we did not know. He does this on purpose. In the 15th Incan dynasty, this is in South America, it's the year 1400 and some odd years, it's actually uh, 1438 to 1471, there was a ruler. The proper pronunciation of his name is Pachacuti. I can't say it, so we're going to call him Pachati. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes they call him Pachacutec, which is also hard to say, so we're going to call him Pachati. I find out if we can call Jesus, Jesus, and his name was Yeshua, and he answers, I can call you anything that I want to call you, and it'd be like a nickname. <laughs> he reigned over the Incas in South America in the 15th Incan dynasty. He was taught by his father and his father's father and the fathers before them to worship Enti the sun god. You remember that Psalm 19 said, even the sun stretching forth speaks a message. Well, all of these people were worshiping the sun because it brought light and life everywhere. And they called that Enti. But one day, Pachati is standing there and he begins to notice something. God is moving in his heart because he's built for the eternal. He's built to see the creation and want to worship. And he began to reason in his heart some things. He said, if Enti is universal, if he's really God everywhere, why can't he give light to everybody? Why is it always dark for some and light for others? Why is he the source of darkness, in other words, through his absence? And that puzzled him. Then he looked and he said, if he's really perfect, why can't he ever rest? He's always on the move. He never stops. It's never okay. There's never something good. He looked restless. 
did. But the last one, and maybe the most moving, was while he was standing there, a cloud passed in front of the sun and it blocked out all of his light. And he said, if Andy is God, why can't it be obscured by the smallest cloud? And these questions began to long reign in his heart. And he began to long for something more. He built the city of Cusco that my little girl watches movies about all of the time. He built palaces and fortresses. He built a temple that some people say rivaled Solomon's. There's a particular city that he had a court of gold that is world famous and people think may have been the El Dorado. When you go to Peru today, there's a Hiram Bingham Highway that goes right by a city that this man built called Machu Picchu. It's a mountain fortress. It's amazing. But he didn't stay just with his questions and his heart about anything. He began to cry out to the God of the universe. And as he began to do this, he started to research. And he found out that Incans had not always worshipped Inti. In their ancient chronicles, there was another god named Verochi, who was the creator of all things. It seems that the Incans had fallen into disrepair with the god who created all things, so they started worshipping the created things. As he began to cry out to this god, Verochi is what he called it, which meant the omnipotent creator. Listen to what he wrote. This, is a, this actually survived. Uh, Pizarro and Cortez killed all of these people. The people that were supposed to bring the special revelation of the word, the Spanish Catholic conquistadors, came and murdered the man who wrote this. He is ancient and remote, supreme and uncreated, nor does he need the gross satisfaction of a consort. He manifests himself as a trinity when he wishes. Otherwise, only heavenly warriors and the arcing angels surround his loneliness. He created all peoples by His Word. He is the fortune of man, ordaining His years and nourishing Him. He is indeed the very principle of life, for He warms the peoples through His created Son, S-O-N, Son. He is a bringer of peace and order. He is in His own being blessed and has pity on man's wretchedness. He alone judges and absolves them and He enables them to combat their own innate evil tendencies. Wow. Tell me that this man was not saved. You can debate it with me all day if you like. He contacted the God above all others and even had an understanding without an Old or New Testament of a triune God who was speaking to the world through a Son. S-O-N. Too bad that those who are supposed to be Christians murdered him or else the Incans and the Aztecs and all of South America might have experienced a revival before the first Christians ever got here. Mm. You know what I was amazed about this though? When he began calling out to Verochi, the first thing that he noticed is that it's God alone that helps us fight our desire for our own plans and take up His plan. The very argument about general and special revelation is evident in the only writing that I have that survived from him. He realizes that the way that seemed right to him was not right. And that it was God alone who could bring him the power, the strength, and the knowledge 
to lead him in the right path. He was struggling with the same choices that we have to make. Turn with me then to Acts 14. I met two of the young men in this church and they, uh, they've been entertaining me ever since. It was several years ago. But they grew up together so they had all these little sayings for each other. Much like Matthew and I do. We don't share them all with you. But when you spend a lot of time around people, you have your own little language almost. And one of the things that they would do that was joking, it was, it was glaring sarcasm, is one would say something like, hey, would you pass me the gravy? Now they say, shut up, don't tell me what to do. And they didn't really mean it. It was funny because it's shocking. There is an attitude, though, that is innate in mankind. We don't want anyone else to direct us because if we have to receive direction from someone else, it shows that we don't have everything that we needed. We're not complete in and of ourselves. We don't like to be shown as inadequate. Women, have you ever been on a tra- trip with your husband and he would not stop to ask for direction? <laughs> Is there any possible explanation for why someone would wander around obviously lost and will not ask for help? I'm a pastor. I haven't been with you on your trips. But I know what it's like in our general lives. We will wander around lost and will not ask for help because we don't want anyone to know we're in need. It happens all of the time. And we stand there boldly asserting what inwardly we are insecure and unconfident about. And the longer we hold to that position, the harder it is to let go of it. And then you start to hear people say incredibly ignorant things. Like, well, it's always been this way. This is what I, this is what my mom believed. And it's what my dad believed in their dad. What difference does that make? What difference does that make? Either it's true or it's not. What difference does it make who else believed it or how long they believed it? How many generations of Incans worshipped Inti? But did that help Pachati when he needed to contact the God of the universe? All of the gospel is about changing from something that we already are and a general revelation, understanding about God into a more specific spirit-led walk, empowering us, making our choices for us so that we're walking in God's will whether in famine or in plenty. I'm going to give wedding vows soon. And one of the things that people usually promise each other when they get married is that whether rich or poor, for better or for worse, in good times or in bad times, sickness and health, all of those things, that you'll love the other person. We need to be able to have that trust in our God and His plan for our lives regardless of what we see around us. That's why we have to know that the decisions that are made are not ours, they're His. Are you in Acts 14? Acts 14 could not be a story of a more fickle people group. So it's really a story that could take place in any American church, including this one. Starting in the 8th verse. In Lystra, Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and who had never walked. He listened to Paul, and as he was speaking, Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Are they happy with Paul? 
Yeah. Don't talk to me. Yeah. Are they happy with Barnabas? Yes. yes. Very happy. Because the special revelation that Paul and Barnabas are bringing them just healed somebody. They liked it when it told them, hey, you're a good person and gosh darn it, people like you. <laughs> Their general revelation about the way the world worked didn't match this special revelation. See, they understood that there were gods. But their names for gods were things like Zeus and Hermes. And so they tried to cram what God was showing them into the preordained box that they had already decided that God could and could not work in. And so watch what happens. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Before we get to the 14th verse, think about this. There was a priest in the temple already to Zeus. Why is there a couple of guys there? Apparently Zeus wasn't doing it for him anymore, right? Now guys are there who have not come in the name of Zeus. They've come in the name of Yeshua of Nazareth. They've come in the name of a foreign god. But because they like the results, the people like the results, they receive them like gods. As long as they conform to the concept and the imagery that the people have about God. Paul wrote to one of his buddies about this. He said they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Most of the world is trying to take what God is telling them. The revelation that is coming from God that is perfect and revives the soul, but cram it into an old, dead religion that is worn out and doesn't work and hasn't worked for years. God is dynamic. He's powerful. But it requires us to give up our plans for His. And this is not a thousand-year plan for your life. It's a light to your feet right now. Do I make this decision or not? What would happen if he laid out to you for, for you the next 10 years' decisions? Well, I can think of several things that if he had told me about in advance, I would not have had the courage to do. So he told me just enough to get me started. Right. Nobody else can relate to that? Yeah. Let's see what keeps happening. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now should they be offended with the title worthless things? What had it been worth to the man who was crippled? Not much. He was still crippled. You understand what I'm saying? Why do we cling to things that aren't working for us? Because there's comfort and familiarity. It's scary to change. It's hard to take bold steps. This is why we call it faith or trust in God. Who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see where he starts? The Creator God. In the past, He let all nations go their own way. He let you operate under the general revelation you had. Yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, that difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. It's almost like they're not understanding the words that are coming out of His mouth. Huh. 
as long as they are doing something that is fun, that is entertaining, that people don't mind. But the moment this special revelation they're bringing is hurtful, tells people to repent, tells them that they have the wrong plan in the wrong way, and that God will not bless it and is not pleased with it. Let's see what the people do. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowd. They stoned Paul. By the way, the same Paul that they were trying to sacrifice to as a god one sentence ago. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. That means they tried to kill him and may have. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. It seems that it's hard to keep the righteous down. I wanted you to read this because people have their own plan and way of worship. Barnabas and Paul were trying to bring a special revelation. God has not left Himself without testimony. In our lives, if we look, He has brought good things and bad things in an attempt to steer us. Rain, crops, food, joy, or possibly famine, hunger, change in locations. The real question is, will people leave the general revelation they have about God and humble themselves? and take up God's special revelation or will they simply shoot the messenger? Here they just killed the messenger. <coughs> now, amazing thing happens. You can't kill God's messenger. You know why? Because God thwarts the plans of the people and He upholds His plan. He had a plan for Paul's life. So it didn't matter how many rocks they threw at him or how many times he had to die. God would keep raising him as long as Paul's plan matched God's plan until he got the gospel everywhere it had to go. But when God's plan for his life was done, he surely lost his head. Where there is no suffering, saints, there can be no glory. But we must learn to put God's plan first. Turn with me to Acts 26. Had it always been this way in Paul's life? Had he always had God's plan for his life? Or did he at one time have his own plan and had to come to a shocking, startling, blinding revelation that he was wrong. In Acts 26, pick up with me at the 12th verse. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in the language of the Jews, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. God had not left Himself without testimony in this man's life. Paul was experiencing frustration in things. God was trying to lay obstacles in his path to steer him in the way that he should go. And apparently Paul ignored the small ones. He's a forceful, powerful man. So when God laid a roadblock in his way, he found a way around it. When God laid a bigger roadblock in His way, He found a way over it. When God laid a bigger roadblock in His way, in His mercy, God knocked Him down and blinded Him so He could no longer choose His own path but would be forced to hear a still small voice telling what His path was. Now why might Paul not have wanted to hear the plan that God had for him? Do any of you remember what God's plan for Paul is? Come unto me and I will show you what you must suffer for my name. I'd have picked a different road too if I could. Not really. Not really. If you're not ready to give your life for Jesus, what are you doing here? 
Paul did not hear easily because it was a hard thing to hear. But do you think that your life is made up of the easy choices or is it the sum total of the difficult ones? I would bet that it's the latter and not the former. Turn with me to Acts 17. While Paul was waiting, this is the 16th verse, for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. You know, Athens, Athens was the God capital of the world. God's plural capital of the world. One ancient writer, Theogenes, said about Athens that adding one more God to the pantheon in Athens would be equivalent to throwing a single piece of limestone into a quarry. You understand? There's so many gods, they just get lost in the mix. <coughs> I lost a few pounds one time, was joking with my friend. He said, that's like spitting in the ocean, Eric. Talk to me when you get into double digits. <laughs> Not enough to make a difference. He's distressed. Can you imagine what it must have been like for a Jewish apostle to be around so many gods? You can look at people's lives and go, you know, how did they get into this position? That's so far from God, I don't even know where to start. This must have been what Paul felt like. God has never left himself without testimony in people's lives. You just have to look. You just have to have an openness and say, Lord, help me. It just so happens that before Paul was there, and Paul is here sometime, I don't know, in 50 or 60 A.D., 600 years earlier, God had been preparing the people in Athens. Diogenes Laertius was an ancient historian. He wrote a book called Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. In that book, he recounts a story about a man named Epimedes. And where the story starts is in Athens. And a king named Megacles is actually featured in some prominent movies lately. Is at war with the followers of Cylon. Year 600 B.C., and what they do is they meet and say, hey, let's quit fighting. I mean, after all, can't we all get along? Cylon's followers said, sure. We'll accept you as king, Megacles, and we'll stop this rebellion. But you have to give us amnesty. Megacles said, no problem. Of course, I didn't want to fight anyway. He waited for them to all put down their arms, and then he murdered them all. Well, shortly after that tragic event, a famine falls out on the city of Athens. And see, the problem is the common people in Athens they associated Megacles' dishonest act over promising amnesty and killing the people with the famine. So they start to sacrifice to their gods. They start at the very top of their pantheon. And they sacrifice, but the plague doesn't stop. So then they move to their next god, but the plague doesn't stop. And after they've sacrificed to all of their gods, they, they came to a conclusion. We're kicking against goads here. Something's happening. Something's wrong. We're unable to bring about a change. Why is it always that a testimony starts there? Always we get to a place where we need special revelation when we have worn out our ability to try to make it work. Why do we have to get there? Why do we have to get to a place where you're weary and heavy laden before you cry out for a Savior? Wouldn't it be much wiser to just acknowledge up front, humble ourselves rather than have God humble us? and say, Lord, I probably won't get this right if you don't help me. Would you show me what to do? 
And then throw away your plans for a moment. Lose your life for a moment. Try to find His life. Just so happens that they get so desperate that they cry out for a foreigner to come and help them. The foreigner is from the Isle of Crete, a special place called Gnosis. It's where the Gnostic philosophers came from later, but he was not a Gnostic. His name was Epimedes, and he's something of a legend in, among Greek poets. He's one of the seven great Greek poets. They say he lived to be 150 and was wise beyond any man in his time. But to the Athenians, he was a foreigner from a small island in an out-of-the-way place. They sent for him. That was humbled in itself. That is asking for help instead of sitting there saying everything's okay. Don't look too closely. It's all fine. No, we never fight. We have no problems. It's all okay. While the ship is burning, they asked for help. So God used this man. Why, why would He have to use somebody from the Isle of Crete? Why not use one of His special people? In 600 B.C., what is happening with His special people on the earth? You got it. Because of their disobedience, they're in bondage in Babylon. So the resident prophets, the people who have already received the special revelation, those best able to handle it were so wrapped up in their own sin, they couldn't go help. A little bit like the church. But God raises up because He is not limited by a lack of resources. A man that doesn't have everything right that will at least speak when God says. And Epimedes answers the call. And when he gets there and he observes the plague, he looks around and he says, man, you guys got a lot of gods. And I said, yep, God capital of the world. He goes, well, I'm going to make some assumptions. If you sacrificed all of these gods and it hasn't stopped, there must be a God that you still don't know about. And what we need to do is make our appeal to Him. We'll say, God, who we don't know about, would you help us? Because none of our gods are helping us. Isn't this where everybody gets born again? When everything that you've tried to do has failed, everything you've trusted in has failed, and so you say, God, I must not have known you as, thought, as well as I thought, Maybe I've been operating in my own revelation and calling it yours. Would you help me? He devises a scheme. He says sheep normally eat in the morning. When you let them out of a stall, they're hungry. He says, let's do this. Get white sheep and black sheep because we don't know what kind of sheep this God likes. Put them in two separate stalls. Get some speckled ones too. We'll get three groups. Let's keep them in their pens all day and all night. We'll let them go tomorrow morning. If they go out and eat, that would be the normal order of things. But if some of them refuse to go out and eat and instead lay down, then we'll assume that the unknown God is telling us that He wants them as a sacrifice. And then He raised His hands, Diogenes said, and Epimedes prayed, and the Athenians prayed with Him. And then they did what they said to do. And among the black sheep, a black ram laid down, while every other went out. Among the white sheep, a white ram laid down while every other went out. Among the speckled sheep, a speckled ram laid down while every other went out. Can you imagine the anticipation of the crowd as they're watching this? Wondering what kind of God could there be that we don't know about? We worship everything. So they ordered an altar to be built to sacrifice these rams on. 
and they were about to inscribe a name upon the altar. Do we cram this God who's trying to reach us into our own format, our own general revelation, or do we allow this new special revelation to take on its own form and dominate our lives? Isn't this where even Christians are on a daily basis? Do we cram what God is telling me now into my own plan? Or do I let this become my plan and I throw out my own? I hear that God will shut a door to work because He wants to move you to another. I hear that God will cause one house to sell so that you can move to another. I hear if the timing is not right, He may even close a womb. But He opens them later. Matt said that his wife was a little bit like a weed eater. He couldn't get her started, and then when he did, he can't get her to stop. It's all about God's plan in finding that right timing. So Epimedes watches them about to inscribe a name. They're going to put this God in the pantheon with all of the other gods. And he said, no, 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 don't do it. I said, why? He said, I'm scared we will offend this God in assuming that we know His name, His character, His authority, His reputation. We're assuming that He's answering us because we're admitting that we're ignorant of His way and we need His help. I said, what do we write? He said, write Agnosto Theo to an unknown God. They did what He asked. Put the altar there and the plague stopped. As time went on, they forgot about the God that was unknown to them. How many times has God rescued you in your life only to have you forget about His working? I was complaining this morning that God spoke to me audibly in 1993. It changed my life. But Lord, You haven't spoke to me in that way since. And He reminded me that about three weeks ago sitting in a train track, He touched me in a special way. Moved me to tears. I couldn't get it together to preach. We forget so quickly His moving in our lives. And what we try to do is conform His moving to our own plan. That's not the good news. Let's pick back up in Acts. We're going to finish this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, to those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. How humbling that must have been. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I have a brief aside for you here. Ten times in the book of Acts you can see that Paul goes into a Greek city but starts in a Jewish synagogue. Ten times in the book of Acts, you can see that not only does he begin preaching in the Jewish synagogue, his topic is the resurrection of the dead. And yet today, we act like the Jews are finished, and we preach going to heaven and rapture instead of the resurrection of the dead. The way that the church got where it is now, spread out all over the world, was a Jewish man starting in a Jewish synagogue in a city and working outwards and always talking about the resurrection. And you don't hear that except on Easter Sunday anymore in church. Verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, by the way, this word Oropagus is also translated Mars Hill. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time 
doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You might say they were a little short on action and long on speech. Have you ever been in a church committee meeting? Yeah. Well, why don't we leave that subject? <laughs> Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You talk about putting a good spin on things. This Jew is in their city. What is the very first commandment? Judah, are you in here? What's the first commandment? You shall have no gods beside or alongside me. What is the second commandment? You shall have no graven images of anything in heaven or on earth. You shall have no idols. The very first two things Paul ever would have been taught in life are being violated grossly standing here. And yet, what does he say to them? I see that you're very religious in every way. Sometimes we can look at people and decide God can't move in their life because they're too far gone. We don't know that for 600 years He's been working behind the scenes in their lives. We don't know that He's brought them rain in season and out. In fact, we mock the things that they say are miracles because after all, they don't know God anyway. We think it's only as church people that He hears. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's moving in the lives of mankind so that He can consider everything that they did. Look what else he's doing. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, Theo. For 600 years, God had worked to put something there so that when he brought a special emissary carrying his special revelation there, he would have a topic of conversation. What did God build into your life just to give you a platform to speak with somebody about Him. This book, Eternity in Their Hearts, works to dispel that theory I told you about with Tyler. Just by showing that every culture somewhere has got built into them the truth of the Gospel. It's just our job to bring the special revelation to that culture so they can be freed from the errors that happen when you only get general directions and can get something more specific. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and He does not live in temples built by human hands. You know what's interesting about that? There are even some Jews who confused this in the first century. They idolized the temple where God was supposed to dwell. And Jesus taught that we are the temple. He said you can tear down this temple and God will rebuild it because the emphasis was on a building and not upon the God who forms and shapes the hearts of man and considers everything they do. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places What's that say? And the exact places where they should live. God has arranged our lives so that you are in this room at this moment so that you can hear these words. Not just this room. He's going to do it to you again and again and again for a specific reason. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out and find Him 
though He is not far from each one of us. We think of this in terms of salvation. Saints, do you only need to find Him to get saved? Or are you constantly caught in the situation where you have a general idea of how you think things should go, but you need to know specifically in this instance what should happen? He put you in the situation you're in right now so that you could reach out and find His will for your life this moment. For instance, my brother Casey is in a job where a door closed that looks horrible. It hurts. It feels bad. But He put him in that situation so that Casey and Michelle could discern not just what God's general rule was for their life, but specifically right now where they should live and work. And so he had an interview 12 hours later and had his first day at his new employer this last week on Wednesday. God is working in our lives like that. How many times has he tried to do something like that, though? And Jonah wouldn't go. (laughs) Or a conquistador got there before the prophet did and killed everyone. How many times have our disobedience caused heartache? You know what that's called? Kicking against the goats. There's an exact place that he wants you. He wants you to be able to find his will. Right now, that exact place for at least the next few moments is right here. What you do after that needs to come from Him and not just from you. When you have the assurance that you're in the exact place that He's called you to be, doing what He's called you to do, you can know that it doesn't matter the size of your army, whether or not you have a horse, whether it's famine or feast, whether you're rich or poor. There are other couples in here contemplating gigantic steps of faith and moving. The only decision is not what is the populace like there. It's not whether or not there's a business that can support their family. It's not whether or not people approve or disapprove. It's is this the exact place doing what God wants me to do. And when we answer that question, nothing can hold us back because God's plans will not be thwarted in our lives. But if we still have our own plan and we're trying to put God's spin on it, He has to thwart it. He's considering everything we did. Where do you find yourself this morning? For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Anybody want to guess what poet said that? Epimedes. He said it in a poem called The Paradox. The subject of the poem is human beings dealing with an immortal God. And he called it a paradox. How can the two coexist? How can they hear from each other? In one other place in Paul's writings, writing to Titus, in the first chapter and 12th verse, he said, one of your own poets said, all Cretans are evil, lazy, sluggards. And this testimony is true about them. And it sounds so racist. It's because the context in which the poet Epimedes said that is, if you deny God's plan for your life through your actions, then you are evil, lazy, a brute, and a sluggard. And he told his own people that. You go read Titus and what you find out is that Paul is teaching. When we acknowledge him with our mouth and deny him with our actions, then what Epimedes said about us is true. What category do you fall in today? 
Are you an Athenian who is going to hear from God and acknowledge His unknown ways in your life? Are you a Cretan that is evil, lazy, sluggard, refused to? Are you an Athenian in some areas and a Cretan in others? Anybody really want to be a Cretan? <laughs> Me either. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to take some time. At the end of the year is when people contemplate things. They contemplate the plans for their life. They contemplate goals for the next year. I'm asking you to make sure that you're in the exact place that God has called you to be or at least moving in that direction. Then you can have confidence in this next year that you'll be blessed in all you do. And you will not find yourself kicking against the goads. You find yourself kicking down false gods. I want to kick down false gods. I don't want to kick against the goads. Who wants to go with me? Stand to your feet.